My name is Dr. Bola Sogade, and welcome to CocoaPods podcast. We talk further about umbilical cord clamping at birth. There is a time when you forget delayed cord clamping, and you think this cord must be clamped and cut now. And there's an emergency then no, you want to just go ahead and do all the protocols that the NICU has established to get those babies taken care of as soon as possible. We are very fortunate to have Dr. Ekwase Sanusi back with us. Very, very fortunate on CocoaPods podcast as we round off the neonatal CocoaPods podcast. So Dr. Ekwase Sanusi, thank you so much for being with us on the second part of this podcast. Thank you, Dr. Bola. It's always a pleasure to be on your podcast recordings. Thank you. So, you know, um, we just, as we, we were talking, we've been talking about the um, cord clamping of a newborn. And, uh, you know, as we're rounding off on that topic, we want you to give us a general overview of, you know, in what conditions should we forget delayed cord clamping? And we have to think the cord must be clamped now. And, you know, what is the concept of this umbilical cord milking? What is it all about? Thank you, Dr. Bola. So, um, delayed cord clamping is something that is done routinely here for regular deliveries. When a mom delivers her baby, the blood in the umbilical uh, stump is filled with a lot of, um, just a lot of oxygen-rich cells. It's also filled with a lot of stem cells. Stem cells is what they are doing a lot of research on, and those cells are extremely important. And um, when you milk the umbilical blood, what you're doing is basically removing the blood from the umbilical cord into the baby. So you are milking it towards the baby, not towards the mother before you cut. Now, a mom that has had a normal delivery, the baby is crying, everybody's happy, everybody's excited. You can go ahead and do the umbilical cord milking before you cut it. And you can actually just delay that a little bit because the, the baby is still getting a lot of nutrients and oxygen and a lot of many other things, immune immune cells from that cord, from the cord. When a baby is not well, or a baby has been born almost dead and needs resuscitation, that's not the time to start doing the umbilical cord milking because if you don't resuscitate that baby or if that baby's heart rate was down with late decelerations, that baby might be born dead with no fetal heart rate. You don't want to start messing around doing any umbilical cord milking you quickly cut the cord do as do it as quickly as you can cut the cord take the baby to the NICU or to the resuscitation room which is usually next to the delivery room and you start resuscitation for that baby most babies do very well most babies make it and they're fine but if a baby is born and needs a lot of resuscitation and a lot of work on 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 the baby. Some babies actually do not make it because some of them are even born under dire circumstances like abruptio placenta. They've not had any oxygen for a while. And those babies, sometimes they die. So that's not the time to start doing the um, umbilical cord. Delayed clamping, yeah. 
Yes, and delayed clamping because if you have a, an emergency on your hands, you want to resuscitate that baby as quickly as possible. Thank you. And then, um, you know, how about for twins, triplets, or, you know, like the situation of the octomom, you know? So once the babies come out, we want to clamp the cord and go to the next baby. Most of those babies are born premature. <laughs> so you don't want to start delaying, especially if it's a C-section. You know, we, you as you know better than I do that you want to get those babies out and under the warmer, you want them resuscitated ASAP and you want them comfortable. So when you have multiple births, delayed cord clamping, if it was a normal delivery and it's a twin birth where the twins are fine, they're both crying. Yes, go ahead and do your your delayed cord clamping. But when you have multiple births, when the babies are probably born at 30 weeks or less and there's an emergency, then no, you want to just go ahead and do all the protocols that the NICU has established to get those babies taken care of as soon as possible. Yeah, thank you. Usually in obstetrics, we want to get those babies out and hand them off to you guys ASAP. And and we know that. <laughs> so thank we you for that. that. Yeah. Yes. So you know, how about uh, umbilical cord blood banking? What is the status of that, uh, if you want to comment? Well, that is definitely something that um, is recommended because in future, you never know if a child has needs with a bone marrow transplant or needs something or the other for, um, because there's just so many unknowns in life. It's always recommended. Now, the problem is even when we recommend it, a lot of parents say, how much, how much is it going to cost? Because those things don't come cheap. To, to store cord blood, you are going to be paying a fee. And I can't tell you off the top of my head how much it costs, but it's premium price to store that, that umbilical cord blood. And a lot of um, umbilical cord um, storage banks, there are just not that many around. And because there are not that many and there's a demand for it, the price is very is very high. So it's always a recommended thing, um, if, especially for the future, because those are immune cells and those are um, neural crest cells. You have all kinds of genetic cells in the in the cord blood. And if you can store it for the future, if a child, for instance, has sickle cell or and a sibling that has a match, you know, there's a lot of um, details that goes into matching and bone marrow transplants and all that. But if you stored cord blood from any of the children and it can be used for a child in the family who needs it, even after a bone marrow transplant, then your cord blood is always a good place to go to. But the cost is very prohibitive as of right now. And a lot of families, when we ask them, oh, do you want to, because always comes up, um, especially when a mom is about to give birth, do you want to save the cord blood? Do you want to store it? But that's the major problem with doing that routinely as of right now. Hopefully in the future, things will change and to get better. Thank you. So we just want to pivot to the next topic about the baby's immune system. You know, what is the baby's microbiome and how does the mother's microbiome, that is the gut and vaginal microbiome, play a critical role in seeding the baby's microbiome during birth? So if you can just tell us a little bit about this. Well, um, we do live in symbiosis with bacteria and a lot of times we don't even realize it. We have bacteria on our skin, we have bacteria in our gut, and that's actually, the bacteria in the gut actually helps with vitamin K. And um, when a mom is healthy, she's had a healthy pregnancy, she's been eating right, 
she's not had to be on antibiotics that have altered the microbiome of the mom. A lot of babies, when they're born, they don't have any problems. They do very well. Now, in general, when people have been on antibiotics, when moms have been on antibiotics and babies have to be on antibiotics, that creates a, a problem because you've killed the normal gut flora, you've killed the normal uh, flora on the skin, and basically what you've done is sterilize the baby. So when moms are pregnant, it's always a good idea to eat right because uh, simple green vegetables helps to boost the immune system for the mother. A mom who is generally in good health will will have a healthy, We most times will have a healthy pregnancy and a healthy baby. But when that has been altered by whatever condition that mom has found herself in, then we just um, we just have a few more complications in our at our hands and we have to deal with it as it comes along. But um, definitely it's always nice to um, have a, a healthy baby that has been born with a healthy microbiome, which is the normal bacteria that lives in our gut and on our skin. And basically that's, we, we thrive when we have a healthy microbiome around us. So, but a mom could need antibiotics, like when she is group B strep positive in pregnancy. I know we obstetricians, we give antibiotics when the mom is in labor. So what is the big deal about the baby catching group B strep? What, what does that do to the baby from a pediatrician's point of view? Now, um, group, group B strep is one of the common uh, bacteria that we see in the newborn period. And when babies are born with that, they can have infection. Remember, when the babies are born, their immune system is not that great until they are six months and up. And that's why when we, we catch infections, not just group B strep, if mom has had chlamydia or has had gonorrhea or anything as well, group B strep is the commonest that we find out, especially for normal um, pregnancies where mom is married and in a, an environment where there's not been any um, exposure to SDDs. Group B strep has to be treated because when babies are born and they've been exposed to group B strep, they're more at risk to get infections. And that those infections can end up causing bacteria where there's bacteria in the blood. And when there's bacteria in the blood, it can seed anywhere. Those babies can have meningitis. They can have urinary tract infections. They can have myocarditis. They can have infection anywhere. So that's why we're always very particular. When babies are born and there's a history of maternal gubi strep, uh, we tend to do all the workup. We check their, we do a lumbar puncture for them. We also do urine and blood. Just We check their CRPs, which are markers of inflammation. And those babies usually are, are on um, ampicillin and gentamicin for the first few days of life until their cultures come back negative and until everything is is uh, cleared. But because of the increased risk for severe infection in babies, we have to take that uh, very seriously. And OBGYNs uh, generally do a very good job in checking the for the group B strep um, infection. And when a mom is treated, that takes care of a lot of things that could potentially happen to the baby. Wow, thank you. So do probiotics or I mean, you know, uh, inserting a garlic clove in the vagina. I mean, you know, uh, we've had some questions come in. How do you view those things, you know, for effect on the baby? You know, there's a lot of old wives tales. They tell you all kinds of things. You talk about poultices, onions, how onions cleanses everything. I always tell moms, I say, you know, there's a lot of research to be done in natural <laughs> 
in natural remedies because some of those things actually work. But because I, as a physician, and you as a physician, we're trained to take care of uh, people without, we didn't have that training of holistic, put a, a garlic inside here and, and do some onions here and there. I cannot speak on that, but I always recommend you can't go wrong eating the onions and eating the garlic and eating a healthy diet because that helps with your immune system. It boosts your immune system. Anything that you do topically, I don't know if it works and I cannot speak to that. So it's always safer to observe um, health practices that have worked over the years. And that's what we are, I as a physician, I'm comfortable with. So I don't know about putting anything anywhere because as you are putting stuff in there, you might be introducing other bacteria. Now taking probiotics, there's a lot of talk about prebiotics because they say once you eat the probiotic, it gets into the system and it's neutralized by the gastric juice or the gastric acid. So it might not necessarily be a good idea to take probiotics. But you know what? Yogurt has your uh, cultures, your natural cultures. If people want to eat yogurt uh, to replace the microbiome in their body because they've been on antibiotics, go for it. There's all these um, other powders that you can mix and put in the food. There's all kinds of companies now making all kinds of things with all kinds of claims. I just recommend eat your vegetables, drink, uh, drink your water, eat your fruits, a well-balanced diet, do your exercise. Nothing beats doing the healthy things that keep you nice and, and healthy. Thank you. So as we pivot to the next topic, which is the pediatrician prenatal visit, you know, having a baby like you have alluded before and everybody knows can be one of the most joyful and rewarding experiences of life. And, you know, when it comes to a newborn's health and wellness, what should the mom or the parents be doing in preparation for the baby's arrival? What is the purpose of the expectant parents' prenatal meet and greet visit with their prospective pediatrician? Okay, um, when you're preparing for a baby, um, you want to make sure that you cross all your T's and dot all your I's. And it's always a good idea to seek a pediatrician that you can work with. Having a meet and greet with a pediatrician will let you know if there's a pediatrician you can work with or if you need to keep looking because there are some pediatricians I personally I wouldn't go to. And there are some pediatricians that you just meet them and you're it's just they are so easy to talk to and they're full of a wealth of knowledge and they're willing to share. So it's part of the preparation process for the baby and for the parents too, because when you are when you have a good pediatrician that is easily accessible, that has all the information that you need, it's always, um, it's, a, it's an extra feather in your cap because if you wake up at 2 a.m. and there's something going on with your baby, you can reach your pediatrician and pediatrician is like, oh, do this or do that and I'll see you in the morning. You also, uh, you, you want to make sure that, first of all, the personality of the pediatrician is warm and fuzzy and friendly because that's all you need for your baby. And the other thing you want to know is how accessible is the pediatrician. If the pediatrician is only open two days a week, what happens Apart, okay, they work Monday and Tuesday. So the rest of the week, the remaining five days of the week, what happens? Is your pediatrician usually accessible for calls? Do they have telemedicine? There are sometimes you might not want to leave the house. You want to do a telemedicine visit. Is that uh, available with your pediatrician? And then you want to visit the pediatrician's offices. Um, there's a lot of nice pediatric offices. You walk in there and what we call the feng shui of the place, you just feel happy to be there. So it's always uh, important to make um, planning or 
getting a, a pediatrician part of the part of the plan as you're waiting to welcome your baby is definitely a plus. Plus, the other thing you need to find out is does your pediatrician have privileges in the hospital where you're going to deliver the baby? Because a baby might be born in a hospital where the pediatrician has no um, privileges and then you need to know that, okay, who covers for that pediatrician in that hospital where you're going to deliver the baby uh, until you see your pediatrician? And if nobody covers, then you can use the on-call pediatrician that is there for the baby's needs when the baby's born. But you also want to let the hospital know that, okay, my pediatrician is going to be Dr. ABC so that that way um, everything is sorted out. Because if you do not have a pediatrician, most times is the pediatrician that sees the baby in the nursery that by default becomes your pediatrician. And it's always nice to have a choice in the choice of your pediatrician, for sure. Well, thank you. You know, and w- at about what time should this uh, prenatal, uh, pediatrician prenatal visit happen before the baby is born? You know, what is a good time for you as a pregnant mom to do a pediatrician prenatal visit? Well, it depends on how how comfortable mom is. Some moms, they already have their pediatrician before they even get pregnant. So it's never too early to start looking for a good pediatrician. Some moms say, I'm taking my baby to my pediatrician who took care of me when I was a baby. Because a lot of pediatricians, they are in practice till they are 70 or 80 years old. You know, so some moms are already said, they know that, okay, I'm taking my pediatrician, my baby to my pediatrician. And there are so a lot of moms are like, oh, I don't know. I, I don't have any clue. It's always better to take th- take care of things early. So if you can get that pediatrician as soon as you get pregnant, then you're good. If you wait till the third uh, tri- trimester where you have a lot of things going on, sometimes you might not be able to pick and choose like you would have if you had done it earlier in the pregnancy. So there's really no uh, ideal time, but it's always best best to be ready and to be prepared earlier than later. In the third trimester, second trimester, first trimester, it really doesn't matter. There are a lot of good pediatricians out there, but the good pediatricians generally will have a waiting list. So you also want to try and get the pediatrician of your choice early, meet and greet different pediatricians. A lot of pediatricians' offices have what you call meet and greet, where you go see them before the baby is born. And um, that way you can get comfortable knowing where your baby, who's going to be taking care of your baby before the day or before the baby comes. Yeah. Yeah, And, you know, just talking about, you know, how common this uh, pediatrician prenatal visit is um, with pediatricians. Some, Some studies suggest that more than three quarters of pediatricians offer a prenatal pediatrician visit. And some surveys show only 5% to 39% of first-time parents attend one. And, you know, is there like an urban, rural distribution when it comes to a woman seeing a pediatrician during the prenatal period that you could touch on for us? Well, in the rural areas, there's not that many choices of pediatricians. So if there's a delay in um, finding a pediatrician, it's usually because parents don't know that they, they need to do that. And um, But generally in the urban areas, there's a lot more choices and there's a lot more information out there. So I think in the urban areas, a lot of patients, because they know that 
there's a, uh, they have choices. They would like to get things done early. I'm guessing that in the rural areas, because they know that it's either Dr. A or Dr. B, they're like, well, we'll pick and choose when the time comes. And people don't really take that as seriously as people in the um, urban areas where there's a push to get your pediatrician on time just so that everything is settled before the baby comes. Well, thank you. And, you know, at the after the actual meet and greet, what actually happens at this prenatal pediatrician visit? Do you guys cover topics like safety topics like car seats, you know, the kind of beddings, the need for a crib or bassinage, immunizations, uh, breastfeeding, donating blood? What are some of the things you pediatricians actually talk about during the prenatal pediatrician visit? Well, a lot of... Um... When 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 we were in when I was in general practice and we used to do that, we would give them packages and it had all the information that they needed for those visits. The hospital also does very well at doing that too. Now for the uh, car seats and all the um, education of that, usually we don't do that in the office. It's when the baby is born and the baby is about to go home that the nurse who is discharging the baby shows mom. Because we give them a package and say, hey, this is what we recommend. Most moms will pick and choose what the, their friends are doing or what their family members are doing. But when they get to the hospital and they've had the baby, it's when they're about to be discharged that the nurses go over the need to, okay, for the first um, few months until the baby is 20 pounds, the baby needs to be um, rare facing before you can turn the baby around, these are the things that have to happen. The baby has to have good neck control. They have to have ABCD in place. So the nurses actually go over that. And it's kind of like a part of the discharge planning for the mom before the baby can be discharged home. And the um, the hospital makes sure that the baby's, the baby's car seat is done properly in the car before they even put the baby inside the car to go home. So that a lot of that training for the car seat goes is actually um, done in the hospital not in in our offices as pediatricians because most times when moms come they are just getting information they don't have the actual baby car seat and some hospitals they will not discharge your baby until they see the car seat and they've taught you and they see that you can put the baby in the car seat properly that baby is not going home until that is done which which is a good thing which is a very good thing Thank you. I mean, you talked about the baby car seat. I know there's a National Highway Traffic Safety Administration that really enforces the way, um, you know, and gives guidance as to the way these car seats should be installed and how they should be facing. And you talked a little bit about that. Can you just say that again about, you know, maybe the weight of the baby and the way the car seat should be facing? Well, in the first year of life, the baby should be facing backwards. And that's because babies, they can't, they can't control their necks. They have very poor neck control up until they're at least two, three months old. So when a baby is, is facing, is rare facing, that minimizes their heads bobbing up and down and them having to, um, be them being uncomfortable just because the the car seat is rare facing. When they're t- uh, twenty pounds and over, usually you want to turn the. They have good neck control. By the time a baby is twenty pounds, they're almost a year old. So we usually have them turn forward facing after that. And then the car seats, there there's what you call a five point harness where 
the, the it has to cover it has to support the shoulders it has to support the back so there's usually um uh, gadgets to basically make sure that that support is given and then you also have car seats where the um the seat belt for the baby for the uh, car seat is actually in between the legs of the baby so basically you have good body control for the baby in the car seat and they won't sell uh, any car seat generally like all the places that sell car seats they won't sell any car seat that is not approved by the traffic um uh, administration. So most of the time, that is what you're going to be buying anyway. Once you go to any store that sells uh, car seats, they'll tell you what the recommendations are. And to be honest with you, those recommendations, they change from state to state. When when we lived in California, this, the uh, guidelines for car seats was different from New Jersey. So some states are more particular about how long a child should be in a car seat for, and it varies state by state. So wherever a mom is, you just need to find out what the requirements are for your baby and your car seat. And at the end of the day, you, you won't be breaking any laws. And um, there's always people that you can um, follow up with that will give you those those details, especially before you go home. Thank you. Thank you yeah. so very much, Dr. Yeah. Sanusi. So in our upcoming episodes, Dr. Ekwase Sanusi, you particularly have the advantage of practicing in two continents, both in America and in Nigeria. I mean, what is the newborn car seat situation in Nigeria? 